0: The other day, out in the mountains west of here, I was walking by the pasture of a cousin of ours. Down the road was a flock of sheep. They were in a tight group, busy scarfing up the last blades of grass where they were, oblivious to the barn behind them with the Biden-Harris poster painted on the side, already beginning to fade from the wind and the weather. Two of the sheep had started to get bored with the grass underfoot and had begun to move away. As I watched to see what would happen, the whole group of them began to follow the lead of the enterprising pair. And by the time I returned to the sheep after my walk, the whole flock had reached another part of the field some distance away. They seemed to be doing just fine without a watchful shepherd. The only time I saw a shepherd with his sheep was when I was staying at the Scottish hospice in Jerusalem. The window of my room overlooked a patch of grass, and on it was a small herd of perhaps a dozen sheep. It was right next to the Hebron road which led into the old city. Filled with hazy memories of pictures of shepherds in Sunday school texts, I imagined the shepherd nobly standing sentry on the lookout for anything that could endanger his flock. Maybe he'd even pick up one of the lambs in his arms and cuddle it. The cars went by at great speed along the road, and the sheep kept busy with the grass underfoot. Only once during the time I watched the shepherd did he rouse himself, and that was when several of the sheep, forgetful of the six-foot drop down to the road, approached too close to it and were in danger of falling into a lane of cars. I was almost shouting through the windowpane, do something, they'll fall down the precipice. When the shepherd, with infinite slowness, walked over to the endangered sheep, took his crook, tapped, it, tapped them on the head and made a whistle and the sheep obediently turned around, trouble was averted. They went on eating the grass, and the shepherd returned to daydreaming. I wondered what thoughts occupied this shepherd's mind, what poetry formed his soul during those long hours. For I'd remembered the Greek shepherds some centuries before our era, and how they played tunes on their pipes, sheltered under elms during the midday sun and fell in and out of love. Or the despairing shepherd in Leopardi's poem, who looks up at the moon and says to it, surely you understand the why of things, the silent endless pace of time. As it's plain from the readings for this Sunday, the idea of using the image of the shepherd and the sheep is a commonplace in biblical literature. Jesus, observing the crowd gathered on the hillside waiting for him patiently, expectantly, was led to think they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jeremiah also spoke of shepherds, although he called these false shepherds, prophets who, from Jeremiah's experience, had left the sheep of God's flock get scattered and lost. You have scattered and dispersed my flock, he proclaimed. You have not watched over them. So bad things had got along with these false shepherds that it was going to be left up to God to bring them back to their homes where they would be fruitful and increase. And Psalm 23 sings about God who is the Good Shepherd, bringing his sheep away from the dangers of life to be led to a kind of paradisical state where the pastures will be evergreen, life will be renewed, the right path will be clear to follow and even the dark valley of death can be traversed without fear. Indeed, goodness and love unfailing will be with me my whole life long. If you want to know what life with God is like in its fullness, read, study, and pray the 23rd Psalm. This notion of the role of the shepherd in the life of the community of Christians begins with Christ saying to Peter, not once, but three times, feed my sheep. St. Paul, when he gives his tearful goodbye to the leaders of the congregations of Ephesus and Mytilene, tells them, keep guard over yourselves and over the flock, which the Holy Spirit has given you charge of, as shepherds of the Church of the Lord. And in the first letter of Peter, there's this. Look after the flock of God, whose shepherds you are. All that's quite enough for any one shepherd. But by the time of St. Augustine, 400 years later, the list of the pastor's responsibility has grown almost out of control. As St. Augustine, Understood it? The pastor needs to rein in those who cause trouble, give energy to those whose spirits are low, encourage the infirm, keep a close eye on the devious, give instruction to the unskilled, (coughs) nudge the lazy, quiet the litigious, give aid to the poor, throw a line out to those who are oppressed, I'm exhausted already. (laughs) applaud all those who do well, bear with those who are evil, and, oh yes, love everyone. (laughs) Well you can see how the portfolio of the pastor or the shepherd grew. And now, 1600 years after St. Augustine's time, while some of these tasks other agencies have responsibilities for now, others like counseling, teaching, committee work, an advanced knowledge of technology, have filled in what was removed. (laughs) And we're left with a problem, and for several reasons. One of them is that in the psychological makeup of many clergy, there's a desire to be needed. Another is that we like to be in charge, dare I say, like power. But given all that's in the priest's portfolio, how can one person do all these things, let alone do them well? You'd think today's shepherds, today's priests and pastors would be exercising every ingenuity in trying to lighten their professional load. But we don't. The reasons for this are numerous too numerous to go into today. I can think of a couple of them off the top of my head, though. We keep juggling all these professional tasks because we think we can, and because we believe we're expected to do them. Are we working hard enough, we keep wondering? Are we earning our keep? We worry that we'll be respected, no, loved, our congregations only if we work ourselves to the bone, proudly resist taking time for ourselves and our families if we have them, and our reward for all this is a lean and hungry look, physical and emotional exhaustion, a spiritual life that's withered on the vine, and the loss of avocations that would make others find us interesting to be around. So here's a howdy-do. We have priests, pastors, yes, shepherds, who are so busy being shepherds that we've forgotten that shepherds exist for the sheep, for the sheep's well-being, for their health, for the freedom they need to enjoy the green grass and grow bigger and amass yards and yards of spinnable wool. We should be glad that Jeremiah is not here to give us our just comeuppance. His words would not be pretty. We have holy cow instead. And holy cow laid a finger on the soft spot. The hurting spot in our life together. The fact that the clergy have taken on too much, have gladly pretended to be atlases carrying the world on their shoulders, and they have gone on doing this at whatever cost to themselves and to ourselves. For this affair, state of affairs, works both ways. The clergy juggle so many balls in the air to general applause, and the rest of us, the rest of us, the hundreds of the rest of us, wind up sitting too much like wallflowers at an eighth grade sock hop. Something in us cries out that we're beautiful too, and that we have things to offer ideas to share, competencies to make use of. But we're left standing by the wall, looking out at the dance wistfully, hoping against hope we might be swept onto the floor. It's time to change this image. Time to stop being wallflowers. Stop letting ourselves be like sheep. For there are such gifts lying in you from years of your own spiritual experiences and personal growth, your learning and deep thought, your sadnesses and triumphs, your successes and your failures, gifts God has given you over the years, and it is a shame to let these things go unshared and unused for the benefit of God's people and God's hope for this church. There's nothing noble in being a mute, inglorious Milton. Most of the time, when you search for treasure, you have to find a map, go on a long hunt for the pot of gold or whatever, and perhaps, if you're lucky, you'll find it. Here the treasure we are looking for is right in front of us, in each of us, very near, on our lips and in our hearts, ready to be shared. I have had to learn the truth that my role as a shepherd of my parish is to encourage the gifts of my parishioners, of having someone take a project and apply a creativity and energy to it I couldn't have imagined and certainly could never have done. I have had worship committees find solutions to worship problems that had completely eluded me. I've had parishioners be courageous when I'd have been cautious, willing to tackle the elephant in the room when I'd preferred to have given the elephant water. And I think of the time when I was leading a little group of people who wanted to study spiritual classics. Well, that was right down my alley. We were studying some sections of Thomas Traherne's *Centuries of Devotion*. When two of the members of the group, two elderly sisters, ventured to ask if their interpretations had life in them, they proceeded to reveal depths in the passages we were studying that I never imagined lying there, and no one else had either, so far as I knew. They expressed their thoughts with disarming modesty. I used to think they reminded me of Emily Dickinson, and I should have listened to myself much more seriously. My friends, We have made it through this past year and have survived. There are times when it's worth remembering what the poet Rilke said, who talks of victory? Surviving is everything. Now the doors of this church are open. We are together again. And we can sing God's praises again, pass the peace again. But this new time, this new beginning is also a chance to try new things, to let go of used up and useless things, and to see this cathedral and ourselves in a new way. Behold, I am doing a new thing, said God through Isaiah, the first Isaiah. God is inviting us. It's time. So let's get up and let's get going.